can pinpoint the moment that I was like, man, this disability thing sucks. So like growing up, my mom, um, you know, it was me, my mom, my twin sister, Leah, and my brother, Eric, um, they're able-bodied. And so my mom made it a point to never treat me any differently from them. So whatever they got, I got. You know, whether it was rollerblades, roller skates, scooters, you name it, I got they got it, I got it. And so she was very keen on making me feel, you know, loved and cherished and, and letting me know that I was just as, you know, important to her as they were. And so, you know, shout out to my mom. I love her to bits and pieces. Um, but for me, that changed uh, in sixth grade, I think it was. There was a boy, I still remember his name, Aaron jerk he took it upon himself to you know follow me around the lunchroom mimicking my wimp and of course you know because he's behind me I didn't notice it until somebody um pointed out to me and you know everybody was so kind about it and they were like hey you know don't do that that's terrible that's mean but it was a thing that stuck with me I think it was the first time that I realized I was different and that different was was somehow bad That was Kia Brown, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 109. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. I'm so glad you're joining me today. This episode is part of season 13, which, to be honest, feels totally wild. (laughs) Have we really made 13 full seasons? Apparently, yes. Yes, we have. And with each new season, I'm more in awe and more grateful than ever for the way that my guests are willing to show up and to be real about their messy, imperfect lives. I'm also super grateful for you, for listening, for taking two minutes to leave an iTunes review. Seriously, this is such a huge help in spreading the word and helping new people find us. And of course, I'm grateful for those of you who support and fund the show on Patreon. This is truly a community-funded podcast now, and in 2018, you can look forward to five new seasons. That's the plan, five full new seasons in 2018, and they will be more honest than ever before. I would also love the chance in 2018 to meet you in person. Um, My hope is to do 10 small, intimate, and fun Real Talk Live events. I did the first two um, in August and September of 2017 in London and in Portland, and I am hopefully heading to Boston, Seattle, Los Angeles, Chicago, D.C., and more, and you can find details and grab a ticket at NicoleAntoinette.com slash events if you are interested in doing this real talk thing in person and becoming friends in real life. That would be so much fun. In the meantime, I have a wonderful guest to introduce you to today, but in case you're new to the show, I wanted to first take a second and just quickly explain what we do here. So at the heart of it, my guests and I are committed really to just one simple, powerful thing, and that's telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. No one has a magic bullet, 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything at all. I am a recovering self-help addict. That's my sort of like joking but not so joking (laughs) description of myself, and I'm so over that approach, and I bet that you are too. That's probably why you're here. So that kind of thing is not what the show is about. Here at Real Talk Radio, I sit down with athletes, writers, entrepreneurs, parents, coaches, adventurers, artists, activists, and many others, and we dive deep into meaningful topics like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism 
racism, body image, mental health, grief, fear, courage, change, and just about everything in between. This is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects and, warning, often using adult language, and we never shy away from telling the unfiltered truth in an open and honest way, even when it's uncomfortable. And sometimes it's uncomfortable. (laughs) So with this mission in mind, you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions. These honest conversations are 100% listener funded, made possible by awesome regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight episode season. The show is and will always be free, but if you love it, if these conversations make you laugh, think, or just feel less alone, I hope that you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight-episode season. You might have heard me say this before, but I seriously do believe that where we spend our money is a real-time vote for the kind of world that we want to live in. And when you help to fund this show, that's a vote. You're voting for a world of honest, judgment-free conversations. You're voting to hear more stories from a wide-ranging group of people, the vast majority of whom are women. And when you support this show, you're just saying loudly and proudly that women's voices deserve to be heard and that no topic at all should be off-limits due to fear or shame. This is a show by truth tellers for truth tellers. And as a thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind the scenes email series where I share my real life in real time. And you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for more Real Talk Live events. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Kia Brown. Kia is a journalist and writer whose work has appeared in Harper's Bazaar, Essence, Catapult, Teen Vogue, Lenny Letter, and elsewhere. She's currently a senior entertainment writer at Cliché Magazine, a premier digital fashion magazine that highlights pop culture, fashion trends, celebrities, beauty, and more. In this episode, Kia tells the story of when and why she started the Disabled and Cute hashtag, and she goes into detail about the lack of disability representation in the media, entertainment, and pop culture. She shares what she'd love to see happen, both in terms of representation and from the able-bodied population at large. And she also shares the personal side of her own body acceptance evolution. From there, we talk about everything from celebrity crushes, to the experience of feeling jealous of your sibling, to all of Kia's recent successes as a writer, including the book she just sold. I absolutely loved this conversation. Kia is brilliant and delightful, and I hope you get as much joy from listening to her as I did. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. All right, Kia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. What's the most fun thing that you did this year so far? I think the funnest thing that I did this year was go to Portland. Um, I spoke at the Effect Conference, and it was my very first time speaking at a conference, and so I was really nervous. But it was so much fun, and the food is amazing in Portland, and it's warm, and I loved it. I went in September, so right before my birthday. Um, I think it was like late September, and it was so much fun. That's awesome. I live in Bend, Oregon, so it's like a little over three hours from Portland. And yeah, the food is delicious there. I agree with you completely. I ate so much food. I literally, <laughs> I ate my way through Portland and I was there for, from like a Thursday 
to Sunday and I ate so much food and it was every bite was worth it. It was just delicious. What did you speak about at the conference? I spoke about um, my hashtag disabled and cute and kind of, you know, what it meant to me, what it means to other people. And then like, you know, what I want next for myself, which was really nice. Again, I was really nervous and people were like really kind and they're like, oh, it was so good. And it felt like you were just, you know, a friend talking to me over like coffee or a bagel or something. And I was like, good, that's what I wanted. Um, So it went really well. And I'm like, I still can't believe that someone asked me to do it. That's such a good feeling. When So when you say that you were nervous, what were you most nervous about? Can you pinpoint like where the nerves come from? Uh, for me, like I said, I don't mind. I don't usually talk in big groups. So like I don't mind talking, but like I talk a lot. Like, you know, one-on-one, but never in big groups. Mm-hmm. So that was my biggest thing, like nerves-wise, was like me just... <laughs> Being like, oh, this is a big group of people and, um, you know, what if they don't like me or what if they don't like what I'm saying? And also, um, with me, I cuss a lot. Like, I try not to. I'm trying not to, you know. Well, you you can hear. So That's fine. <laughs> this podcast but, has an explicit rating, so. <laughs> and, and so, like, for me, uh, watching other people's talks and stuff, they weren't cursing. I was like, oh, God, I have to keep this clean. And then, like, the one person before me, I think, or the couple before me cursed, and I was like, yes! (laughs) I'm free! (laughs) So, like, I don't know. I think they did a really good job at, like, making you feel like it was a safe space to just say what you wanted to say and say what you needed to say, but I was still just like, oh, my gosh, you know, this is a group of people who don't know me. Mm -hmm. And they just, like, you know what I mean? And they don't have any idea of who I am outside of, you know, the few of them that had already followed me on Twitter. So it was kind of just, like, trying to get a feel for, like, um, which, you know, which parts of my journey, you know, are going to be the most impactful for the audience and, like, which parts of, of me, I think, I can give to a room full of people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've been thinking about that, too, The just the the common nerves that people often have with public speaking, right? It's such a universal fear. And I think a little bit of it translates to doing something like this, like a podcast platform. It's not as scary as, you know, standing up in front of, you know, a big crowd of people for sure. But I definitely have lots of guests beforehand, you know, say that they're nervous or afterwards, you know, admit that they had been nervous. And yeah, it's, it's like there's this common... I don't know, we we want to be liked. We want to say something that connects with people. We want, you know, our story to come across, you know, in a way that's relatable or yeah, I think I think I don't know. It's nice to hear other people admit when they were nervous. Oh yeah, absolutely. Like my very first podcast I did, um I was just I was a ball of nerves. I was like, "Oh my god, like people are going to hear me speak." <laughs> and like that's so like it was just like the idea that somebody would like listen to me speak. Um it was just like surprising to me because I'm so used to hearing myself back during like transcriptions, like when I transcribe interviews and stuff and I'm just like, Oh girl. But I feel like the more podcasts that I do, the better I feel about my voice when I hear it back mm-hmm. with transcriptions. Cause I'm just like, Oh, okay, girl, like <laughs> you got this. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The it's, it's funny whenever um, I have, 
good friends on the podcast as guests, which has happened a bunch of times, uh, you know, I'll often get, you know, a text two hours later, four hours later, oh my God, I said this one thing and I should have said this other thing. You know, you you start to go over in your head the, oh, well, I wish I would have said, this sounded stupid. And you start to, I mean, maybe not everyone does this, but I definitely do this. And I've seen a lot of people that have come on the show do it, that you kind of spiral. And I always have to be the one to say, that was amazing. Everything you said was honest and awesome. You're the best. Please stop freaking out to the point where now when I have a good friend on, I will tell them you're going to have the urge in six hours to text me and freak out and be really insecure. I promise you that's normal. Everyone feels that way. And don't yes, do it. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's funny. Um, so tell me about the disabled and cute hashtag that you created. Okay, so I created it, it feels like so long ago, but I created it in February of this year. And it essentially was this like culmination of my finally feeling good about my body and myself. Um, Previously, I was very hard on myself. I didn't like my body. I was like, oh, it's too different. Like, it, it feels broken and wrong. And then, you know, 2016 was trash, but it was a very good year for me. And so whenever I say that, like, I like, I preface it, like, I understand that 2016 sucked. But like, for me, um, personally, and professionally, it was really good. And I think um, I woke up after Christmas, um, 2016. And I was just like, okay, this, you know, you look cute, even though like, in hindsight, I had like, you know, bad head. And, you know, I'm sure I was snotty and just a whole mess, but I felt good. And it was the first time in such a long time that I felt good and I wanted to keep it. So I just kept saying nice things about myself every single day for the rest of the year. And then by the time that February hit, I was like, oh, I still feel this way. Like, this is still something that I feel every day. I wake up and I'm happy to be awake. You know, I'm happy to be alive. And so I wanted to celebrate that. So basically what I did was I took four pictures of myself that I really liked. And then I hashtagged disabled and cute. And then I, like, encouraged other people to do it as well. And then, you know, I got offline for an hour because I had edits for an essay due. And then I came back and it was trending. And then by the end of that week, I was like being interviewed by other publications. And that's such a weird experience as a journalist yourself, because you have to like, you have to like turn off your, you know, like, I guess, journalistic instincts, because like, I had to remind myself, like, they're giving you the interview, you're not interviewing them. So you have to like, you know, turn off this, like, oh, a bunch of different questions, kind of, uh, default I have as a journalist so um yeah going through that was was quite the experience because I made it for myself like it started out as a thing for me and then it became a community of people just celebrating themselves and and being kind to themselves for the first time in their lives some of these people and I think it just gave them validation and permission to love themselves which I think is wonderful Mm-hmm. So from the way that you just described that, it sounds like this end of 2016 period and, you know, beyond feeling cute, you said feeling good in your body. Was that really a marked change from how you felt before? Oh, absolutely. I yeah, I was absolutely terrible to myself before, you know, 2016. Like I just I was very unhappy um, for a really long time because I just felt like you know, there was something wrong with me because I didn't look like 
anybody in my, you know, immediate family or anybody, like any of my friends, I was the only one. So I took that as like a sign that there was something wrong and broken. And now I know, you know, it's just me. Like I'm, you know, I don't look like everybody else, but that doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with me. But at the time it was like the end of the world waking up every day and seeing my body and being like, I wish I looked more like, you know, my twin sister, or I wish I looked more like so-and-so on TV. And I just, I wanted so desperately to be somebody else that um, finally wanting to be myself, I feel like is, is it's been so much fun. Mm, that's so beautiful to hear. I love that. Do you think, was there something, cause it's, it sounds like a really obviously pivotal change, what do you attribute that to? Was it just you woke up one you know one day after Christmas and oh like was it just kind of a surprise or do you think that there were sort of like you know what was the domino that led to you changing the way you feel? I think for me it was effort um, because I had had those those moments you know previously, but I let them go. You know I never I was just like oh you know they're going to go away. Like, it doesn't matter. You don't really feel that way, you know, kind of tearing them down before they ever could take root. But this time I made the active effort to say something nice about myself every single day after that day, because I think when you spend your life tearing yourself down, like it's exhausting. And so for me, effort was key because I wanted to try to be better to myself. And I knew in order to do that, I would have to actively, you know, say things that I like and, and be kinder and I guess be more patient with myself. So effort is absolutely the reason that I am here, um, where I am today, because without it, I'd still be the same person, you know, like kind of dismissing every single positive thought I had about myself or just kind of downplaying it. And now I'm just like, nope, this is how you feel. And it's valid and you are great. And, you know, even on days when like, I forget it or when days when I'm having like a rough day, I go into the hashtag and I'll like other pictures and I'll, you know, retweet other people. And I'm just like, you know, even when you don't feel good about you today, you did something good, something that seems to matter to people months later. So um, what's good for me is like the hashtag is now a place where I can go on my best and bad days and remember like this is something that you did for you that became something for a community. And I think even when I struggle on days where I'm just like, you know, you know, we're not feeling the best we are today. That thing will always be good, no matter what. Mm -hmm. I really love your point about have the, the fact that having a good relationship with yourself requires effort. I think it's one of those things that we're just, it's just supposed to come so naturally and easy, right? And it's just your relationship with yourself. And yet, our relationships with other people, we know that that takes effort. You can't have a strong friendship or a strong romantic partnership or a strong anything if you don't put time and energy and attention and love into it, right? And yet we think yes, that those yes. same rules don't apply to us. If I treated anyone else like the way that I sometimes trash treat myself on bad days, like that person would not be my friend anymore. Yes, exactly. It's so weird that we can and we can say these things to the people that we love and our friends and our family, um, but we can never really take our own advice. Uh, in terms of that sort of thing and that's where I was stuck for years and sometimes I get back to that place and it's like the effort that it takes to crawl out is the effort that like I'm willing to make because we are kind of we are we are like our, sometimes our worst enemies because we tear we tear ourselves down more than anybody ever could and I think 
the fact that people sometimes treat self-love as this easy, you know, snap and done thing. It's just not how it works. Like, like I said, it takes effort and you have to be willing to give that effort every single day because you, you can't live, um, not really anyway, spending your days and your nights hating yourself. So for me, um, just at the end of the day, I try so hard because I don't want to live like that anymore. Mm-hmm. And I don't want anybody else to live like that either. You know what I mean? Um, getting out of it for me has made me realize, like, you know, you never want that to happen for anybody else, even mm-hmm. if you don't know them. It's like you never want anybody to feel the way that you did. So now I'm, like, actively trying to uplift people and, and let them know that, you know, they're valuable. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that the hashtag has taken off the way that it has and like that it that why do you think it resonates so much with folks i mean one can never really know but i think part of it might be that people just needed permission they felt like they needed permission to to love themselves to celebrate themselves in their bodies no matter what their bodies look like because the disability community is a community that is wide ranging and it's filled with all different types of people from different you know walks of life and i feel like we don't get that sort of celebration um you know we don't we don't often we're not often in these conversations of of um body positivity and self-love and kind of the conversations that are around, you know, being beautiful. And so we, we had to create it for ourselves. And I think this hashtag is just one of the things that was created to celebrate disabled bodies. And so people just, I think in some way really just needed the permission to love themselves and, and have a place where they can go to, to talk to people that look like them and talk to people that understand in some way their lived experiences. And so maybe that's why it's um, staying with people because it's a place where they can go always there's no time limit on disabled and cute disabled and cute is for everyone and it is a place where all disabled people can go to feel seen and heard mm-hmm. yeah the thing that i've been thinking about i mean obviously knowing that you and i were going to have this conversation and spending time you know looking through the hashtag and this idea the the and the disabled and cute the thing that i like so much about your message and your work and i think that we're so quick to try to put things in, you know, single categories, right? Like someone's either disabled or cute or this or that, right? Or mental illness or this, or, you know, that it's, Mm -hmm. we don't leave a lot of room for people to be many things, right? Like, except for, I don't know if that's why it's threatening or why it doesn't seem to be the case. I mean, I certainly don't have any answers, but I really love anything where people are empowering themselves and other people to be like, well, this is true. And also this is true because I'm, you know, does that make sense? It does. I think that a lot of people believe that they're mutually exclusive. So like you can't be disabled and cute or you can't be cute and disabled. Like it's, it's like, but you can be both and you are both. And people, people don't see disabled people as beautiful. We don't see disabled people in mainstream media in any real positive roles. And when you do, they're white. Um, so for me, representation is so important because I still haven't seen somebody who looks like me in mainstream media. And I was telling somebody the other day that if I have to be that person for someone, I'll happily be it because 
you can't be what you can't see. And there's such an issue with, you know, beauty and fashion, not, not including very many disabled people. And when you see a disabled person, it's a specific type of disabled person who, you know, he happens to be a wheelchair user, but he hates himself. And I think representations like that are so harmful because disabled disabled people shouldn't have to see themselves. We shouldn't have to see ourselves in these stories where we're just depressed. And disability is often used as sort of a punishment um, for a character or seen as this thing that they just hate and abhor. And it's like, it doesn't lead anybody to feel good about themselves. So in many ways, I'm hopeful that the hashtag is proving it there's a there's another side to disability and there's a kind of counteractive thing working uh, like working against the idea that you know we're all sad and we all hate ourselves and we all wish to die and and it's a punishment because it's not a punishment it's just a thing that is you know and the disability community is a community that you can join at any point in your life for any reason at all and i think it deserves much more respect and the tension that it gets. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. I want to talk about this a little more. You wrote something. Um, I mean, I went so deep down the rabbit hole of all of your awesome writing. So at this point, I'm like, I don't even know what comes from what. But there was a, <laughs> a, a, a line that I pulled out where you said, I've never seen a person with a disability as the lead or supporting character in a romantic comedy. And that, I don't know, that really struck me. Yeah, I've never seen it. I think that was from the catapult piece on romantic comedies and disability, because I'm a romantic comedy, like, I'm obsessed with romantic comedies. I love them. I think that they're wonderful and perfect and amazing. But you don't see people like me. Um, You know, race and being a woman aside, you don't see disabled people. But when you add those two things in, you know, because I can never take them away, you never see, you know, a black disabled woman as a as a lead in the romantic comedy, we're not the people that people fall in love with or the people that people pity and the people that people, um, you know, feel sorry, like not just feel sorry for, but they like, they hate with a passion and we're the people that, that are used as props for able-bodied characters to, you know, win brownie points with their love interest or um, be seen as a hero because they decided to, you know, love us anyway. So it's never, it's never, we're never centered in these stories. We're just props. Um, and I think that's a really big problem because as a person who consumes, you know, media and loves romantic comedies, it would be nice to see somebody who looked like me, um, you know, fall in love. And it would be nice to see somebody, you know, be loved and not, and not have it always be about, you know, the caretaker of the disabled person or, you know, the friend of the disabled person. Like, let the story be about the disabled person themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was thinking about trying to come up with examples from, you know, movie, media, pop culture of what representations come to mind for me of disabled folks. And I feel like the only things that I kept coming up with that it's used often as a tragic storyline, you know, like this character yes. that this ha- this happened to them and now they're disabled and it's the worst thing in the world. And it's this sort of sob story from there and that it really, I don't know, starting to think critically about it, that there's, I, I guess I'm not surprised that that tends to be the way that people think about disability if that's all we're consistently told. Yeah. 
that's my thing too is like i i find often that on social media i'm defending my fight for representation for people with disabilities especially women of color um because people are like oh there's so and so like some guy was in my mentions just yesterday because i said something about how we need to change the way that you know we portray disability and he was like what about um captain so-and-so or something from forrest gump you know he was angry but he was also mobile and i'm like what are you talking about like the, you're missing the entire point <laughs> oh like God. like just like masterfully missed the point and he was like well he's just representation i was like okay but that doesn't mean it's positive representation like that's what i'm talking about and i think people like to be obtuse sometimes because they feel like they're being attacked because i'm saying hey you know there's still work to do and then people just want to feel like you know i'm asking for too much but we're a community that people don't think about um, mm-hmm. and, and that's a problem in and of itself because when people come up with these representations that are supposedly good, again, even if you think that they're good when they're not, they're not, they're never good. But when people think that they're good, there's still, you know, a singular type of disability with the same exact storyline, the same exact feelings about themselves. I think now there's what, um, speechless on ABC, but again, that family is entirely white. And there's like no people of color except for one person on the on the main cast. And then in NBC Superstore, I love Superstore so much. It's so good. I just the, started watching it this week and I'm like binge deep into it. It's it is so good and it's so smart and the writing is amazing. But Garrett, even though I love him, he's not a wheelchair user in real life. So there's a problem there too. So I feel like everything that people, you know, come at me with in terms of representation, they still have their own problems. And no one thing is going to be perfect. But I think when you can only come up with me as like, come up to me and say, oh, Forrest Gump, like that's not a good representation of disability, mm-hmm. mental or physical. Like that's just not, that's not the hill that you should want to die on. Right. Is, the for- <laughs> is the Forrest Gump hill. Like that's just not where you should, you know, take your stand because... It's not a good representation. And I liked I liked Forrest Gump as a kid. I really did. But, you know, it was before I knew, you know, how problematic the movie actually is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I mean, I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of representation because I think it is sort of messy and complex. And it's very interesting for me to hear the things that people have come back at you with. Because I think it's almost like the fact that people come back with, you know, one of a a small sampling of what about this character, this character, this character, the fact that you can count on one or two hands, the number of, right, like characters that someone could mention, like, that's a problem, right? Like, if someone came to me, and was like, Oh, there isn't enough represent or tell me about able-bodied white women character like what we'd be here for the next six years <laughs> do you know what I mean and so it's yeah. like the fact that there's only a couple to choose from like that's the problem right. in and of itself and then it's just it's just funny because sometimes it's other disabled people and I'm like don't you guys know that we should we should have more than scraps like we shouldn't be scrapping at these at these poor representations just because it's all we have mm-hmm. like Because the disability community is so wide-ranging, we deserve to see have at least two characters for every disability. Like, it shouldn't be this thing where we're we're cherry-picking movies from years and years ago and still trying to act like that's great representation in 2017. Like, that's just not how it should work. And so, for me... I just feel like those sorts of of people, like, they just kind of prove my point because... Mm -hmm. 
they're just like you're like you're proving my point. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Have a great day. Like, right. Yeah. Bye. Just, yeah. Bye. <laughs> like, and it's I don't know. People just I mean, in in many ways, I've received so much love and kindness from people with you know my speaking out about it all. But um, some people, I think, just really don't. They don't like being challenged on their terms of um, representation. They don't like being told, hey, this thing that you love and that I love and that we love is a thing that still has a lot of work to do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's again, the, the and. Something can be something that someone loves and also still be problematic, right? Or like that yes. we have to leave room for for that. It's it's when you brought up Superstore, I mean, it's really fresh in my mind because I literally just started watching it this week. And since there's, what, three seasons, I have a lot of binging to do. Um, you do. But that, that character, Garrett, right? That's his name? Yes. Mm-hmm. So for folks who don't know, is, is in a wheelchair. And the thing that struck me as different in a good way, obviously it's not perfect like you said, but about his character is that his disability isn't a part of the storyline. Like he just happens to be, do you know what I mean? Like he gets to have a full, at least from what I've seen, it's like any, like so much of the, so many of the examples that I could come up with of disability. First of all, it was almost always someone in a wheelchair, right? That real physical representation. And that like the, the, the media portrayal of the story is always around the idea of fixing disability, Right. Like that's, and his isn't like that. Like it's not, and that it's, it, 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 all these examples, and I'm, I'm not being very articulate. I don't think about this, but the examples I kept coming up with in my head, it was like, okay, well, this, this person's body is a problem to be fixed. And that's not, that's not the story that I think that we should, and obviously it's not the story that you think that we should be telling. (laughs) Yeah. No, I agree. I think that's what's smart about superstars. Like it's problems with him aside, like him not being a real, you know, disabled person, which is another issue in itself they don't center his storyline and his, you know, personality around him being in the wheelchair. He just is. And that's just what it is. And like though the other characters will say like, you know, like there was a, I don't want to spoil you, but you know, they mention it from time to time, but it's never a thing that, that defines who he is. You know, he's still, um, you know, romantically linked to people and he's still funny and witty and, he has a life of his own that, that has nothing to do with, you know, him being in a wheelchair. And I think that that's so smart because you see the opposite all the time. Whereas, like, the wheelchair or the disability itself becomes another character. And then it drowns out the person who's the wheelchair user um, from the real story because you're so focused on, oh, well, you know, this disability is... is um, you know, weighing them down, but really it's not like that at all for Garrett. And I think that that's so smart and it's so important Mm -hmm. because people are people, whether they're wheelchair users or not, and they have stories to tell that have nothing to do with their disability. Yeah. So something I would love to hear more about, you mentioned um, a little ways back how, you know, wide ranging and diverse the disability community is. And when we're talking about representation and storytelling, I do feel like it almost always comes down to you know, someone's in a wheelchair, someone's in a wheelchair, like that, yes. that's that. So what are, I, again, I, I, please correct me if I'm like using incorrect terminology or something, but what are either like types of disabilities or other like facets of the community that you would like to see more widely represented, like not just dude in wheelchair? Okay. I'm so glad you asked this question. So, <laughs> so I'd like to see women of color straight out the gate. 
straight out the gate. Um, I would like to see disabled people like myself who don't use mobility aids. So that's, that's wheelchairs, canes, etc. I would like to see non-binary disabled folks. I would like to see um, just... I would like to see stories where people have disabilities, but again, it isn't their sole storyline. And I would just really enjoy seeing, you know, more women, especially more women of color. But like I said, with um, I'd like to see disabled people without mobility aids, and I'd like to see disabled people in love and happy and have happy endings and live to the end of the movie. I mean, revolutionary, right? But I would love to see that. You know, it would be cool, it would be cool to survive the, you know, death uh, slump that we always find ourselves in whenever we're in a movie. Um, but, yeah, I think I would just like to see more women, especially women of color, and I'd like to see non-binary people, and I'd like to see people, you know, either with other mobility aids like canes and stuff, or no mobility aids because we're just seeing so much of the same and it's exhausting because I'm a living, breathing human being and I exist and I'd like to be seen, you know? It's not like I feel like I'm asking for the world, but I'm just asking for people to tell stories that are like mine and understand that, like I said, the disabilities community is such a wide range of community. It's time that all of our stories are told, mm -hmm. not just the white wheelchair users. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, and, and, and I think, like you said, you know, uh, disabled folks falling in love, doing other things, like that it's a wide range of experience where the story isn't just this character's entire existence revolves around trying to fix their disability. Yes, because often able-bodied people think about our disabilities more than we do. Like, that's just, like, that's just the truth. I'm not trying to be mean or anything, but so often it's a bigger deal to them than it ever is to us. And so I'd like to see stories where we're given the respect of being human beings first and you know not that they shy away from our disabilities but just that they're there and they talk about them sometimes but but not that it's the focal point mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i mean it's it's funny that obviously we're talking about representation in you know pop culture movies entertainment hollywood but this of course has a direct correlation to Ha like being seen in real life right not that movies aren't real life but you know what i'm saying right that it's like we yes, often I tend see. to mimic our behaviors off of what we see we do i think very much that our media informs the way we view the world and and how the world views us and so that's why i think it's so important for positive representation because it'll change it'll help change the way that the world sees us you know right now all we have are pity stories um, save those two shows, Superstore and Speechless. And, and so for me, it's my goal to help try and change that in some way. You know, I'm not a movie star or anything, but... Not yet. I, <laughs> you never know. Yeah, one day, fingers crossed. No, I really would. I would love to be in a movie. But um, for me, it's just, I want to be, you know, a proper, like a, a good piece of representation for disabled people. And so people don't see, you know, oh, hey, that girl there yonder is <laughs> she's happy and she's um she's living her life and it's not this sort of pity party that we usually see with disabled folks mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so uh, pivoting slightly but i'm interested in your i mean i feel like journey is such like an overused whatever word but about the way that your 
body acceptance. I don't know if disability acceptance is the right phrase to use. Like when you look back over the last, I don't know, five years, 10 years, or even from like when you were a kid to now, like, how do you think of the evolution of how you feel about yourself? Like, are there like key points that stand out? Like, oh, this thing happened and that made me think not so great things. And then this thing happened and that started changing for me. Like, do you, do you get what I'm asking? I do. Um, yeah, for me, it's, it's, it's surprising to a lot of people that I can pinpoint the moment that I was like, man, this disability thing sucks. So like, Growing up, my mom, um, you know, it was me, my mom, my twin sister, Leah, and my brother, Eric. Um, They're able-bodied. And so my mom made it a point to never treat me any differently from them. So whatever they got, I got. You know, whether it was rollerblades, roller skates, scooters, you name it, I got. They got it, I got it. And so she was very keen on making me feel, you know, loved and cherished and, and letting me know that I was just as, you know, important to her as they were. And so, you know, shout out to my mom. I love her to bits and pieces. Um, But for me, that changed uh, in sixth grade, I think it was. There was a boy, I still remember his name, Aaron, jerk. He took it upon himself to, you know, follow me around the lunchroom, mimicking my limp. And of course, you know, because he's behind me, I didn't notice it until somebody... Um, pointed out to me and you know everybody was so kind about it and they were like hey you know don't do that that's terrible that's mean but it was a thing that stuck with me I think it was the first time that I realized I was different and that different was was somehow bad because this kid who I don't even know where he is at at this point in his life but um, that this kid was like making fun of me and so it was different and it was bad because he didn't like it and so if he didn't like it nobody else did and so um I, I used that one particular uh, point in my life to tell my story because I feel like for me, that's when it started. Mm-hmm. That's when the hate started. And then the hate persisted from sixth grade through college and then a couple years after college. And then, you know, I got to 2016 and finally started to feel good. And so me now, looking back at that person, um, you know, that child really, from my middle school years, it's just, I feel so bad for her and I want to hug her and tell her that everything is going to be okay and that she's perfect just the way she is because... And that Aaron's a dick, uh, you know, so, yeah. Yes, 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 exactly, <laughs> that Aaron's a dick and he can rot and um, just that she's, she's beautiful inside and out and I think for me, it was never, I never saw who my mother saw, you know what I mean? I, I never, you know, I didn't understand why my mom thought I was beautiful or worthwhile or anything that I was to her. And now, you know, it's like when I finally like myself, I'm like looking around and like all my friends and family who were waiting for me to get to this place. It's just like, oh, you know, I get it now. You know, I get what you were seeing. You know, there is something wonderful about me, you know, Um I just, I'm sorry it took me so long to get here, mm-hmm. but I'm here. And I'm glad that you're here with me, you know, sort of thing. So, yeah, that was my that was my moment when I was like, hey, man, this disability sucks. You know, I was in sixth grade, and now I'm just like, hey, man, this disability is pretty good. Like, I'll, I'll take it because I'm alive, and I'm doing things with my life, and I'm, I'm changing people's lives which sounds so cheesy and so self-serving but you know it's what I've been told so I'll take it Mm -hmm. no I mean I don't think it sounds I mean if it's cheesy it's cheesy but I don't think it sounds self-serving I think 
that's like the natural feedback loop that we want to be a part of, right? Like doing something that matters to someone else or that connects us to someone else that then comes back. And there's, I don't know, I I think that's just human. Yeah. Well, thank you. I feel better about it now. (laughs) I just, yeah, I just, I think that's what's been so good about all of this is just that I, I'm in some way helping people or, or someone told me the other day that the hashtag um, is helping them raise their self-esteem because even though they're not ready to post pictures yet, they go in it every day and they mm-hmm. see people who look like them and, and they're like, okay, that's going to be me one day. I'm going to be ready to do it. Um, you know, I get emails all the time, like, thank you so much. I know that, you know, you don't know me, but this means a lot to me. And I'm from Australia and I'm from Africa and I'm from this place and that place. And what you did means something to me. And I'm mm-hmm. just like, oh, sweetheart, thank you. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, you don't really know um, how something is going to go over with somebody, especially when you create it for yourself and then just kind of encourage other people to to be a part of it. You never know that it's going to be what this has become. Mm-hmm. So with Disabled and Cute, this, this word cute or idea cute, you mentioned before enjoying shopping. What makes you feel cute? I'm curious, potentially the role, uh, I know you've talked about uh, wearing lipstick as being like a pivotal thing for you. Um, yes. Will you talk about that a little bit? Like what makes you feel cute? Sure. Um, like I said, a good outfit will definitely make me feel cute, like a, a good salad outfit. Um, lipstick, I think too, I feel really, really cute when, you know, my shoulders are out. <laughs> I just really like my shoulders. Um, and that I feel I feel cute when new pieces come out and people like them. Um, and I feel cute too sometimes, even when I'm just at home in sweats and I'm eating pizza or a cheeseburger and, you know, listening to music. So I just, I think cuteness for me is, is both physical and, you know, emotional. So like, if I feel good, I feel cute. Mm -hmm. So whatever's making me feel good is, is helping me feel cute. So it's, um, and it changes day to day, but often music, clothes and, um, lipstick and food helps. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. The reason I asked that question is because, I mean, and obviously you're talking about the word cute because that obviously resonates with you. I think it's different words for different people if they, you know, like how they want to feel, right? Like the thing that comes up for me a lot is strong. Like I want to feel strong. And Mm -hmm. so then it's like worth asking myself, okay, when do I feel strong, right? Or when do I feel sexy or whatever those words are. And that I think that's a really worthwhile question for everyone to ask themselves, like sort of like, how do you want to feel? And then what are the conditions that make you feel that? And then your worth, whatever effort it takes to put those conditions in place. Yeah, I think so too. And I've had why I have like I've had like writer friends tell me I don't know why I struggle to get that I have like out. But um, I've had writer friends tell me you know never put your worth in the work, um, never never equate your worth to the work. And so for a while there, that's what I was doing. And so when the when the attention on a fee, on a piece would fade so too would my confidence. And then once I started looking outside of, you know, writing and and the work that I do, even though I love it, and I still get that sort of high from, you know, people liking a piece that I wrote or something that I did, finding worth in other things about myself that I'm never going to do, that's never just going to fade, um, was a really important thing for me because now even when I'm between pieces and waiting for something to come out, I will 
be fine because Mm -hmm. it's not just in the work it's something that's within me as well as the work you know so I give my all on the page but I still have something left that's for me that'll carry me through you know the days and weeks between pieces yeah I think that's simple and really powerful that advice of not you know finding all of your worth in the work Yes. Has, has there been any other, because I, I want to kind of pivot and, and start to talk about your writing. Um, okay. ha, has there been any other advice that you have received either from mentors or other writers that's really been impactful for you? Well, um, anybody who knows me knows that I love Roxanne Gay. She's brilliant. And I actually got to interview her for Harper's Bazaar, which... Yeah, like, that, that piece was wonderful, by the way. I'll link to it in the um, show notes for sure. Thank you. She's brilliant. Um, she said to me, before I even knew that she had read any of my work, she said to me on Twitter, she was talking about not um, writing for free. And I was like, I don't know if I could ever do that because, you know, I don't know if my work is good enough. And she's like, I've read your stuff. Like, it's time for you to level up. So mm. past so past me being just completely excited i mean screenshotting the tweet and everything about her saying she read my stuff i think that was some of the best advice i've ever gotten was just like believe in your work enough to know that you deserve to be paid for it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know and and only and only write for free when you feel like it's something that you can supplement otherwise because um i spent so long writing for free because i was like oh my you know, my work isn't really worth money. And then, you know, all it took was for Roxanne Gay to say the opposite. And I was just like, okay, all right, I'm going to start requesting, you know, a fee. And, you know, that fee ended up being, you know, sometimes $10, sometimes $20, sometimes 25 maybe 50 And then from there, you know, my rate went up because I was doing more work and I was like turning out you know, work that people seem to enjoy. Um, but for me, yeah, that's some of the the best advice. I think Lisa Meacham, who's amazing as well, she told me to never put the worth in the work. And then Roxanne Gay told me to know that my work was worth money. And so those are the two best pieces of advice I've ever gotten in terms of advice about writing. Mm-hmm. You have a a quote on your website that I love and have come back to a couple times in the last few weeks. It says, words are sacred. They deserve respect. If you get the right ones in the right order, you can nudge the world a little. I love it so much. What's that from, that quote? Um, I know Tom Stoppard said it, but I have no idea what it's from. Um, Because I think it's the only thing of his that I know, no, like the back of my hand, no. I don't know where it's from, but I just think it's beautiful. I think it just showcases that words matter, you know, when words can help change the world. and, And you can make it a better place with words. And as a writer, like, it's just one of the most beautiful things I think you can say. Mm-hmm. Because that's what you want. At the end of the day ego be damned you want to write something or create something that matters to someone and i think that's that's kind of the encapsulation of that like you can change the word the world with your work mm-hmm. i mean i think of books you know obviously other types of writing too but books that i've read over the course of my life that for real changed my life right that like that is true the right words in the right order can i mean nudge the world a little obviously but can like on a personal level i have had for sure changes through reading something that someone else wrote and remembering the the power in that 
I don't know. Mm-hmm. I, I sometimes it feels overwhelming, but sometimes it's a perfect reminder that like of how important the work is. It is. I remember Dear Mr. Henshaw by Beverly Cleary. She never, first of all, they never talk about Dear Mr. Henshaw when they talk about her work, and they should. Because Dear Mr. Henshaw is the reason that I am a writer today. Because it made me want to be a writer. It made me want to write something that mattered to somebody enough to write me letters, even though I lived in Wyoming. Like, you know what I mean? I just, books like, books are so powerful, and words are so powerful, and telling stories, you never know who they're going to impact. And how. And for me, that was the thing. I was like, okay, I want to be a writer. And it was like in the fourth grade that I read it. And before I wanted, before that, I wanted to be a lawyer because I watched Law and Order and I thought that their outfits were cute. So, <laughs> and then, you know, I read Dear Mr. Henshaw and I was like, okay, this is it. This is what I want to do. So what did the path look like from fourth grade to now? What did you, when you knew that was what you wanted to do, what happened next? Well, nothing. There was a there was a period of time where absolutely nothing happened. I didn't um, actually even consider it as a career though until high school. Um, one of my English teachers, Mrs. Heineman, bless her, she pulled me aside after class one day and was like, "I think that you can do this. I think that you can be a writer." And I knew already that I wanted to be a journalist because, like I said, I talk a lot and I'm nosy, and <laughs> I knew that that was something that I wanted to do, you know, with my life career-wise. But I didn't know that you could also be a writer um, until she said something. So I left high school, got into college, journalism major, creative writing minor, because I knew that I wanted to do both. And I knew that I loved both with an equal measure. But um, so aside from my creative writing classes, like my minor, I kept, you know, at writing separately outside of school but I never you know submitted it anywhere never thought it was ready so I didn't really start writing creatively until after college when I felt like it was good enough for um <laughs> like for publication but what was funny was that I didn't really know even with my creative writing classes like I didn't comprehend how to properly write uh you know a nonfiction. Um, a nonfiction essay and tell a story. You know, I did take creative nonfiction, but sometimes when you're in college, you don't really retain information well. Mm-hmm. So, um, <laughs> so my very first piece was for a site called Femsplain, and I wrote about you know being jealous of my sister and kind of our journey as as siblings and and getting to a place where like I want to apologize to her for my behavior, you know, toward her as we were growing up. And then after that, it was it was it's been like steady going ever since. Can you share some of the successes, professional successes that you've had in the past, I don't know, year or two as a writer that you feel most proud of? Ooh, yes. Oh, yeah, my God. brag okay. to me. Let's go. Yeah, I'm going <laughs> to brag to you. So um, I did some Harper's Bazaar pieces, which were amazing. Again, the the I did a Harper's Bazaar profile on Roxanne Gay. That was amazing, like brilliant, fantastic, perfect. She's just otherworldly. And then I did some stuff for Teen Vogue. Um, and then, you know, I landed a literary agent. I interviewed Tia Mori. I from uh, sister sister yes <laughs> that's for, awesome oh my gosh she was so kind and so great I did it for the um a magazine called cliche magazine where I'm a senior entertainment writer and so I've talked to a lot of celebrities um in the past four or five or so years um and 
I just I've been published in a lot of really big places, ESPNW, Essence Magazine, like brilliant. Um, let's see what else. I guess the biggest thing I can brag about is a book. I sold the book. Um, it's coming out via Atria. I sold it. It's called The Pretty One. It's an essay collection, and it's about joy and happiness and kind of me telling my story through essays. And the theme really is about, you know, being in a really bad place and then coming out on the other side of it and what, what that looks like for me, you know, what my life is like now in terms of, of feeling good about myself and my body. And that'll be out via Adria, um, which is through Simon & Schuster. And my agent, Alex Slater, shout out. He's the best. Um, he's at Trident Media Group, and he brokered the deal. And I'm just really, really, really excited because this has been a dream of mine for most of my life. And just to think that my name is going to be on a book spine is is just, ugh. Oh, I don't you're even giving me words. chills. I'm so excited like, for just, you. <laughs> I, ugh, I just, wow. I'm still not over it. I will never be over it. This is relatively new. This, like, this happened recently, right? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, yeah, recently, like a couple of weeks ago, maybe. <laughs> so exciting. So can we talk yeah. actually about the process a little bit, how you went about getting an agent, how much of the book you finished before starting to submit it out? Like, will you talk a little bit about the nitty gritty of that process? Sure. I'm very lucky in that I didn't have to look for an agent. Agents came to me, which is very rare. Um, I've been told. So I didn't have to do the whole process of like, you know, writing things, getting something together and sending to an agent because the agents came to me. And then, you know, I spoke over the phone with a couple of agents and they're all amazing and wonderful. But Alex felt like the right fit for me. He he just gets what I'm trying to do. And essentially what we did was we sent out um, a proposal and the proposal just detailed excuse me, what I wanted the book to be about, you know, kind of the audience that I have so far, you know, what, where my work has been previously. And then we attached a couple of um, proposed essays to be in the book. Now, these are essays that I did not previously write. So these are like, I think there was one in there that I previously wrote, but the rest of them were just kind of like me rewriting these brand new essays. And then, um, so I think I have like six done. And then we attached them to the proposal, sent it out, and the process was long, but not as long as I think a lot of people's usually is. But, I mean, it felt like a, a thousand light years. And then I spoke on the phone to some editors, and then me and the editor from Atria, Ajante, just really hit it off. And she is really, you know, excited to be working with me and... Just to know that, that an editor who will help me create a book wants to work with me, you know, that is so excited and she really understood what it was that I want this book to be and what, I, what I've always wanted in a book, um, especially a debut, a debut book. But um, she's just really great. And Alex, he's amazing. And I'm just really excited to, um, this, like, to have this opportunity and to to hopefully write a collection that will mean something to someone when it's out. Mm, I can't, it means I can't that, wait to read it. Oh, it's going to be it, so, so excited. It, 
it already means the world to me. And it feels like like I'm ha- like I'm getting ready to have a child. It's just gonna take long. <laughs> it's just gonna take longer than nine months. But you know, it it will be my baby. Um, it will be my baby, and I'm just really like I don't even have the words, but I'm so excited because um, this is a lifelong dream, and I I will be able to say that I have a book in the world mm-hmm. and if i ever see it in the store i'm gonna cry oh yeah and they're gonna be like oh, i mean why of course is, why is she sobbing <laughs> this why is, is my she book sobbing over there about the books <laughs> my face look at that's so good so, yeah i'm just oh i can't wait i cannot wait and Can... um Go it's just gonna be good yeah I yeah yeah um, can you share the specifics about your writing practice process? Like, do you write every day? Is there what kind of routine is there around it? Basically, I'm curious what being a writer looks like for you in your everyday life. Okay. Well, I write a bit of everything. Um, so for me, I try to section it out morning, afternoon, night, you know, so in the morning, I'll do my cliche magazine stuff. So that's, you know, celebrity interviews, uh, you know, reviews of TV shows, et cetera, et cetera. So it's like, like, it's all entertainment stuff. Um, and then in the afternoon, I'll do, you know, other freelance stuff. So like, if I get hired to do something from Harper's, so like the Roxanne, um, gay profile, so, like, I'll set everything up for that in the afternoon. And then at night, I'll do um, the essays. So I try to do all three of the things that I do um, during, you know, those times. So it's like I separate it out. Morning is always cliche. Afternoon is often always, like, freelance stuff. And then at night, it's essays. But sometimes the freelance and the essays time switch depending on, you know, who I'm working with or who, you know, time-wise, what they can fit into their schedule. Um, So then usually, like, on the weekends, I kind of, you know, work on my poetry and my fiction because I, like, I want to do a bit of everything because I love everything. I love fiction. I love poetry. I love nonfiction. I love journalism, you know, so entertainment journalism, really. And I want to make sure that I do everything so that I'm not pigeonholing myself into one thing because I love all of them so much so I want to you know work on them in any way that I can Mm -hmm. I'd love to talk about resistance like the resistance to doing the work I don't know what your experience is like with that but I have a lot of resistance to the blank page or to I mean I know I'm not alone right like Stephen Pressfield wrote entire like books about this but that what is what does resistance look like for you sort of like what shape does that take are you like oh I need a snack I need to organize this thing again like what does it look like when you're like my house is never cleaner than when I have some creative thing to do that I really care about basically oh my god I'm so (laughs) Yeah, no, I get it because I'm such a procrastinator. Like, I don't know how I get anything done. Because <laughs> well, the system you just laid out sounds like you get an insane amount right. done. So I do, I do. And people are always like, "How are you working so much? Like, you just have piece after piece coming out." And I'm like, "Listen, I don't know either." Because <laughs> first of all, I don't know how I got off of Twitter to do it in the first place. So often, like, what I do is because I hate, I hate a blank page as well. So I'll start writing something in the notes on my phone. Um, you know, just to avoid getting on the computer and seeing a blank page. That way, I never see a blank page because I'll take what I started on my phone and paste it into the document mm-hmm. immediately. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So is then it I'm less like, threatening oh. to work in the phone. Yes, yes, yes. Yep. So then I'll paste it. I'll paste it, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm already, you know, I already have something <laughs> done. Like, so I trick myself into thinking that I'm being productive because I write like a paragraph on my phone just so the page won't be blank when I go to my computer. Oh yeah, um, I love it. And then. I just, yeah, I'm the worst. And then, you know, getting off Twitter, like I made a joke a couple months ago that was like, I know, I know you guys are shocked that I'm getting any work done. Me too. Like same, because I spend so much time on Twitter or like, you know, because I've met so many like good friends on Twitter. And so our friendships begin on Twitter, but they're, you know, beyond Twitter now, either text messages or WhatsApp or something. So like, I'm always, um, on Twitter tweeting things mostly just about how attractive such and such a celebrity is or um, how I'm in a open relationship with the Cheesecake Factory. <laughs> and like, so I just spend so much time on Twitter in particular that like, I don't know how I get anything done, but, but making sure that I have um, time allotted for each thing that I want to do is what kind of keeps me afloat. And then that isn't to say that, like, I still don't procrastinate because I absolutely do. But at least I know when I'm done procrastinating, this is a specific thing that I need to work on. And um, this is what I need to work on it for because, you know, when such and such a time hits, I got to move on to the next thing. Um, But for me, also using a planner has been so good because what I tend to do is I buy a lot of planners and only because they're cute. You know, I am my mother's daughter, but I never used them. And then, you know, when I started to get busy, I was like, I probably should start using these because they could help. So what I do is like the night or like the Sunday, I'll write out everything that I have to do for the week on which day that I have to do it and then um, go from there. So I write them in the importance, like what needs to be done first? Like what do I have to send in first is the thing that I'll do first in the day and then everything else after that, it'll go accordingly from, from, you know, super important to like, okay, if I have to, I can put you off until Tuesday. If I have to, I can put you off till Wednesday, et cetera, et cetera. What kind of planner do you use? I use, okay, it was cute when I first bought it, but I used one of the, but it's not anymore. I used, I used the big, the bigger planners. It's light blue and it's great, but I want a pretty one with like a pretty cover and like the pretty cute pages. But um, it is effective because it does work and I do use it every single day, but I just, I don't love it anymore because it's not cute. I want one of those passion planners, you know, the ones mm-hmm. that like, that have like little to-dos in the corner. They just look so nice and they're so expensive, but I want one. Yeah, I, I'm a big sort of, pen to paper. Like I don't use Google calendar or anything like that. It like makes my husband crazy, but, um, I have used Aaron Condren's planners for years. And, um, for 2018, I actually just bought myself, um, the get to work book. Have you seen that? Mm-hmm. No, um, but yeah. I'm into it already. What? Yeah, it's I, I, just, well, I haven't started using it yet because it starts in January, but it's yeah, beautifully designed, really nice. And but it has the focus. It was, to my understanding, made for, you know, entrepreneurs, creative entrepreneurs like people like us. And that mm-hmm. it's has like a built in structure of these are the three most important things for the week. This is that, you know, that it sort of like forces you to separate the important stuff from the urgent stuff, which I can fall into a trap of being really bad at that. It's like very easy yeah, to just answer same. emails all day and like to avoid, you know, like the bigger work. And I have some big creative goals for next year that I'm like, okay, I have to actually get really serious about this kind of stuff. Otherwise it's not going to happen. So I hear you. A planner makes a big difference. It does. Oh my God. I want one. You'll have to link it. 
to me. Because yeah. I mean, that sounds like something that I would absolutely love. I will. I'll send you a link to it. I'm very excited. I'm like, is it January yet? Can I start using this planner? <laughs> I'm such a dork. <laughs> I love it. Um, so you mentioned um, having interviewed a lot of celebrities for yes. um, your work. Who's been the person that has surprised you the most? Um, Justin Baldoni from Jane the Virgin. Ugh, oh my God, I yes. love him. First of all, he's gorgeous. He's so, I can't with how attractive he is. I can't, I can't, I can't. Hi, Justin, if you're listening, we love you. We love um, you. Wear no shirt forever. <laughs> because, so, right? Yeah, God. Team Raphael. Oh, anywho, just sometimes when people are really attractive, they're also, you know, not the best people, but like, and we spoke over the phone, but it was one of the best phone conversations I've ever had. He was funny and smart and super kind and just so in love with the show and his cast and the character that he helped create, you know, in terms of like bring to life. And um, he just had a TED talk come out uh, a couple weeks ago about, you know, toxic masculinity. And he just surprised me completely because, you know, you go into these things thinking, oh, my God, they're gorgeous. And so this is going to be one of those interviews. But it really wasn't. He was just brilliant. And then when the piece came out, he was super nice and was like, oh, this was so well written. Thank you. And I was like, oh. Thank you for existing, really, truly. <laughs> um, <laughs> so him, Tia Mori, um, she's just wonderful. Like, I almost cried. Like, I, I, I really almost did. Um, because me and my sister grew up watching her and her sister. You know, we love Sister Sister. So, like, just to talk to her, even if it was over the phone. Um, and a lot of the interviews that I do with celebrities are over the phone. Um Sierra McLean was another good interview. She is on the show Empire. Mm-hmm. Um, she was really great. Of course, I'm blanking on all the people that I've interviewed, of course. Well, no, but the um, ones that come to mind, I feel like that was, you know, whatever comes up first is always the right answer, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I've, I think what always surprises me is that the bigger name people that we interview or that I interview particularly are the kindest which is so funny because you think it would be the opposite, but they're the most fun to interview because even though they've been through the ringer a thousand times, they still give, you know, great answers. And I feel like I've had more trouble with the the celebrities that people don't really know that well um, in terms of like attitude and, Hmm. and stuff. So it's always interesting that way that the, that the bigger name celebrities are the ones that are kinder to me and like their teams are, you know, so understanding of, of you know the fact that the writers have other things to do (laughs) yeah no that's that's good to hear Mm -hmm. it's always nice when there's someone that you have a celebrity crush on and you hear that they're not a jerk (laughs) that's exciting Uh, he's great he's so great so i want to i want to circle back to something that you um mentioned lightly before um growing up and being jealous of your sister will you talk about that jealous of what jealous of the way she looked um, because a lot of times I would get like, oh my God, your sister's so pretty and she's so, she's so perfect and you guys look nothing alike. And I think that people didn't realize that, that it saying that was kind of an insult. Um, and so, because I so desperately wanted to look like her and I wanted her body, but I would just kind of like tear her down or say something that was really mean because I was like jealous. Um, and she, she, you know, put up with it for years and she was always so kind to me about it. Like, you know, even though you're, you know, you can be mean and you can be snappy and you can be harsh. Like, I still love you and I support you. And 
I just want to see you happy and I can't wait for you to get to that place. So then um, I just, I don't know, I got tired of being terrible to my sister because she's my sister and I love her. And I knew that in order to be better to her, I had to be better to myself. So I started being better to myself so I could be better to her. And then, you know, kind of try and improve our relationship from there because I had done so much damage to it. But thank God it wasn't, you know, irreparable because... I, I couldn't live my life without my sister. And so I I just, I love her to bits and pieces. And I wanted to make sure that I was better to her because she didn't deserve who she got as a sister for the majority of our adolescence. Um, especially when I, when I realized just how different I was, um, she didn't deserve that, that person, that, that, that Kia that she got. Mm-hmm. So now, you know, I've made an active effort, um, since 2016, when I started working on myself to work on my relationship with Leah and, and let her know that I love her and that I'm always going to be in her corner, no matter what. So, yeah, I mean, like I said, it took some self-reflection and it took me being honest about the fact that I was a shitty, <laughs> I was a shitty, shitty sister um, to then be able to rectify it and, and work every day to let her know, like, you know, I may have said these things when I was 15, 16, 17, 18 about you, but, you know, I don't feel that way anymore. And I think going away to college helped me too, because I was meeting all these women that were amazing and wonderful. And I'm like, you know, you have all these things that you love in your friends. You already have it all and you've had it all in your sister. So, um, Mm-hmm. It was really nice to recognize that and then um, work on our relationship. I'm really grateful that you're willing to be honest about this because I think that jealousy is so common and something that we feel a lot of shame around, right? There's something about like, and I don't just mean like, oh, I'm like flippantly jealous, but when you're truly jealous of someone, like that feels so gross inside, right? Like they're just not a good feeling it, it and does. we don't want to talk about it. And I'm, I don't know. Yeah. I think often, too, you um, you recognize that it's gross after the fact, but you can't stop yourself. Mm-hmm. Like, it's already too late at the point. When you realize just how terrible what it is that you're doing is, it's already too late. You've already done it. And um, then you keep doing it because it's what you know. And it's not necessarily because you believe it anymore, but it's just what makes you feel better in a moment. And then you feel disgusting for days afterwards. So I think jealousy is one of those things that people... It has so much power when it shouldn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. And I mean, obviously, I have no no magic answers to anything, but of this. But I think it's very I, for me, just selfishly, I find it very helpful and healing to hear you talk honestly about feeling jealous. Right? That there's something to be like. It's like a deep sigh of relief of oh, okay, I'm not the only one. <laughs> right? That like yeah, goes through right? this. No. Or that, yeah, it's it's just very nice to be like oh yeah, I'm not alone. I'm not like a special snowflake that gets jealous. <laughs> you know. Absolutely. Nope. It's not just you. And I think too, like finally admitting it to myself and then, you know, writing that piece for Femme's Flame. And then she texted me because she was at work when she read it on her break. And she's like, Kia, I'm going to cry. Oh my God. Like, I love you so much. Um, I think it was just, I think the only way that you can um, change that sort of thing is admitting it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big step. And so you have to take that step. Otherwise you're just going to be the same person that you always were. And nobody wants to be the same person that they always, that they always have been. You want to grow and change and be better. And I knew that in order to do that, I had to admit, 
you know, hey, I'm jealous of my sister. Hey, I spent years, like, you know, being shitty to the person I shared a room with because she, you know, didn't have a disability. And just like she didn't choose to um, be able-bodied, I didn't choose for a disability, but that doesn't mean that I tear her down just because I didn't like the cards that I had. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So just admitting that to myself and then to her and then to the world kind of all at the same time was was very therapeutic in that um i think it helped a lot with us i think about this a lot that i don't believe that change can happen until we're willing to be honest with ourselves absolutely Mm -hmm. i agree Mm -hmm. so circling back a little bit um when, can, when when you just said that she didn't choose to be able-bodied, you know, that wasn't her choice, your choice wasn't your choice, it's, you know, it was how you were born. Are there any myths or misconceptions either about disability in general or your particular experience that you would love to sort of clear up? Like, is there something that you want people to know that you think maybe they don't know? Yes. <laughs> You're like, let time. me list the thousand things. <laughs> yeah. First of all, I think the biggest misconception is that disabled people are all wheelchair users. Cut that. Cut that out right now. Stop that. We're not. Like, it's it's such a wide community, as I've said a thousand times already, that we don't all use wheelchairs. Also, I didn't get into a car accident, so please stop asking me about the car accident and when it happened and how long it's been. Um... I didn't, you know, it's not contagious. I think what would also help people is, you know, going on YouTube and watching videos of people living so they stop staring at me in stores. Um, That would be great. Mm -hmm. I think that what would also be nice is if people could, you know, maybe stare with their mouths closed. Um, I (laughs) I think another misconception that people have about people with disabilities is that we, you know, are just... And this is an ableist word, but I can't think of another word to say it. Lazy. Like the people think that we just don't do anything all day and we're mooching off the system. Um, and I think people have this idea that disability is just this thing that you can will away. You know, if you work hard enough, you know, disability is just in your head. Like it's just a mentality. Like you don't know it's not. No, it's not just a mentality. Like there are. There are mental disabilities, yes, but disability itself is not a mentality. It's a thing that is wrong with your body whether it's mental physical whether it's invisible or visible like disability is not a thing that you can just will away if you work hard enough you know what i mean and Mm -hmm. i think there's this culture around um the idea of laziness quote unquote where it's like you have to push yourself and push your body to your limits and it's like not everybody can do that like it's not healthy i think there's just ads everywhere and there's books about people, you know, just pushing themselves and, and getting to a place where their bodies are just shutting down. And that's not something to aspire to. You know what I mean? Like when you're disabled, you learn very quickly what your limits are. Um, and I wish that we as a society gave more people the room to take breaths to relax, you know, take a breather, to sit down longer than three seconds. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think that we as a, society, as a society need to give people the room to just settle down. You don't have to always, you know, be going and always be moving. There's a YouTuber that I watch and I love her videos. Her name is Lily Singh. 
and she talks about you know at the very end of the, at the very beginning of her blogs she talks about you know this is a place where we hustle harder and we we don't stop we keep going and I, I mean the sentiment is there I get it but like at some point you have to give yourself the room to rest mm-hmm. um, and we don't do that as a society it's always going 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 no breaks we need to understand that people need breaks we're human beings you know we're not machines yeah people need breaks and i think that's one of the things that that always seems to bother me especially lately is the idea that disabled people who you know need extra time or or need a break are somehow you know failing um in terms of like what we as a society should be doing it's like that's not the case um i also wish that people would stop um, just assuming that disabled people need help. Like, if if I don't need help, I'm going to tell you I don't need help. That doesn't mean that you insist on, quote, unquote, helping me. Um, I once had a situation in college where this girl was like, oh, do you need any help with your folders? And I was like, no, I got it. And she still tried to do it. And then she berated me because I turned down her help. And I was like, no, like, he... If I believe us when we tell you what like that we don't need help and believe us when we share our experiences, um, those are the biggest things I think. Just believe in us, believe us, and give us opportunities to show you what we can do, whatever in in whatever field that may be. Mm-hmm. I love that. I feel like we should just like replay that over and over for for everyone. <laughs> so good. Um, the last thing I would love to ask you about. So I know you have this book coming out, which obviously sounds like a dream come true in a lot of ways. Do you have any other sort of big pie in the sky, like creative dreams? Like what's on your creative or professional bucket list? Maybe someone oh. you'd love to interview or something where you're like, man, that would be amazing. It would be. Oh, there's so many. Do we really have the time? <laughs> we um, have as so much time all, as you want. <laughs> great. So I want to work with Oprah. I want to work with Ava DuVernay. I want to work with Mindy Kaling. I want to work with Shonda Rhimes, the goddess. Um, and I want I want to write a movie. I want to be in a movie. Um, I want to, you know, like write a book, which I'm doing. Thank God. I just oh God, I can't get. I cannot get over that. Um, you know, I just. I want to do it all. I wanted so badly to meet Ellen DeGeneres. I was trying so hard for a really long time to be on the Ellen show. Um, and it just didn't pan out. But I would love to be on a talk show. And I would love to walk the red carpet at a movie premiere and wear a custom Christian Siriano, get, uh, Christian Siriano dress. And I would love um, to go to Paris for a week. You know, so like I have, <laughs> I have bucket list things that like are big bucket lists. So um, just essentially, I'd like to be a part of the process of making a TV show. I'd like to be on a TV show. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. I'd like to do a bit of everything um, at some point in my life. But I would really love to work with Oprah, Ava, Mindy, and um, Shonda, for sure. Well, I hope all those things happen. It's honestly incredible to hear someone owning their dreams and desires like that. Like you were yeah. ready. You had this list to get not, you know, it's, it's so common, I think particularly with women to sort of be, well, like self-deprecating or to hold back or to, and that's something that I'm working on, like uh, not being, not being afraid to be seen as too driven or too ambitious, right? Things that we're told, like, that's not cute to be those things, right? And I'm yeah. like, nope, yeah. <laughs> screw that. I'm going to be all yeah. those things. And so I love and hearing nobody- someone else do that. 
Yeah, nobody looks at nobody looks at a man and says, "Oh, that's too much. No, like, that's too no. ambitious. You should rein it in." No, I'm not reining it in. I'm shooting for the stars. Okay, Oprah is the star, and that's where I'm shooting. Okay, oh so I just I feel like everybody should. All women should be like that. Know what you want and work toward it. And mm-hmm. that's you know what I'm gonna do because those are all the things that I really really want. Um, and also, I mean, I would really love for. Um, Rami Malik to marry me, but I think that that one, I think that one might be a bit too close, you know, to call. But you know, you never know. You never oh my know. Gosh, that's so funny. Um, okay, so uh, the way that we wrap these up are with a quick um, seven rapid fire questions. Um, they're questions that the Patreon community, the folks who fund the podcast, uh, want me to ask all of our eight guests this season. So if you are down okay. to answer seven random questions. <laughs> I'm in. I'm ready. Let's do it. Okay, this one, I'm particularly interested to hear your answer, knowing how much time you spend in the popular culture space. If you could have a hot fling with one fictional character, who would it be? Oh my god, how can I choose? (laughs) Can I give you like a a person from a show that I watch like for each day of the week? (laughs) You can give me as many as you'd like, yes. Perfect. So on Tuesdays, I watch The Flash. And there's Earth 2 Barry, because there's Barry Allen, like, on our Earth. And there's a second Earth, and that's the Barry that I want. But also, from that show, um, Cisco Ramon, who is just, what what a man, okay? And then Wednesdays, something comes on Wednesdays, but I don't remember what it is. Oh, The Runaways. Um, there's nobody on that show that I would want to be with, though. So. so anyway, we'll skip ahead. So the Shonda shows, which are Thursdays, um, I want to fall in love with and marry Huck, even though he's a killer. Like, he's a murderer, but I love Huck so much. And then there's Nate from How to Get Away with Murder. And then there's Jesse Williams. Um, God, what a man. I can't. I can't, yeah. Ugh. He is so fine. And the guy <laughs> that plays Bailey's husband, he's gorgeous. Oh, yeah. And then there was a, I had a moment where I was really into um, Eric Dane, who played Mark. Yeah, I was also into him. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. And then Fridays, there's Jane the Virgin. So that's, um, <clears throat> of course, the love of our life, Justin Baldoni. And then, um, hmm, is that it? I feel like once my, sh- oh, The Good Place. Okay, so I'm The Good Place. I want to marry Chidi. I, I want to marry him and tell him I love him every single day. And then, um, let's see. I think that's it. I think that's everybody that I That would think. keep you busy for a while. <laughs> yes, yes. Lots of marriages. <laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. Um, what's something that you learned this year that changed the way you think about yourself or the world in general? Ooh. Um, I learned that just because people don't like what I do doesn't mean it's not important. Oh, uh, that's good. Yeah. I learned, Cause I think the more, um, I guess attention I get or the more my audience grows, I often find that people, especially this year have been very, you know, kind of terrible about the things that I've been doing. Um, especially my partnership with Tommy Hilfiger, they have an adaptive clothing line coming out in 2018 and I'm, a part of their fashion incubator. So what that, what that means is they sent me clothes 
uh, for me to try on and give them feedback on about like the feel, the fit, do they feel like they're adaptive enough, et cetera, et cetera, which was a brilliant opportunity. And I think while no company is free from criticism, people were very nasty about it and very kind of, um, you know, terrible to me as a human being because of it. So I think one of the biggest things that I've learned so far this year is that just because people don't like you doesn't mean that you aren't worthwhile or your voice isn't worthwhile listening to or your work isn't worthy. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just because people don't like you doesn't mean you have to not, doesn't mean you have to not like yourself. Uh, you can still make work that matters to people even if somebody else doesn't like it. So like even if somebody doesn't get it, you get it and that's all that matters. Please call me every day and tell me that pep talk because (laughs) listen, it's no, I've said this before on the show that something that I do when I'm feeling very self-doubty is I will pick, you know, one of my favorite books of all time, something that had a huge impact on me. And I will go and look at all of the trash one-star reviews on Amazon to be like, see, you can't, you can't please everyone, first of all. And Mm -hmm. the more that you want to do work that matters or that makes an impact, it's going to make someone uncomfortable. The larger your audience gets, the the larger the haters are going to get. Like all of this stuff logically makes sense and then feels obviously like shit when it happens. But I feel like that's like a constant lesson to learn it is and i think that's the biggest lesson that i've learned in in 2017 is like just because somebody doesn't like you doesn't mean you're not doing something good girl like not everybody's gonna like you or your work but that doesn't mean that it's you know bad but on the flip side there are going to be people that love it yeah Mm -hmm. exactly what's something that didn't go as expected for you this year um trying to get on an ellen degeneres show (laughs) oh i tried so hard listen i tried tooth and nail okay i had a retweet from chelsea clinton and it still didn't happen um and she was so nice she's like oh she like cc'd andy who's the producer in the show and it just didn't happen for me and i wanted it so bad and i'm still a little devastated but uh yeah that was my biggest disappointment this year i think Tell me about a time when you feel like you pushed your own limits whatever that means to you like when you did something that you didn't think was possible and really impressed yourself Ooh, um, the I guess it's a couple things. Um, the first being the Roxanne Gay interview for Harper's Bazaar. When they reached out to me to do it, I thought it was a joke. <laughs> I, was, I was like, um, are you sure? And then um, the editor that I had worked with on a previous piece about Lord for Harper's Bazaar was like, oh, no, we want you to do it. I was like, you want me to talk to her? Like, say actual words? <laughs> she's going to hear words? Oh, my God. I was like, she's going to hear me, like, speak. And then the turnaround was quick because she has such a tight schedule. And um, once I got the questions approved and we talked on the phone and she was just so complimentary and so kind. And she's like, I just, I love reading your work um, when I see it and you've grown so much. And I'm like, at this point, trying not to weep on the phone. Okay. Like I'm, I don't even know who did that interview because I was dead by like minute. I was dead by like minute two. So like whoever did that interview was just, it wasn't, it wasn't me. Um, it was you from the beyond. <laughs> it was me from, yes, it was me from beyond. And so that was, that I just never thought was possible. Um, I've also, the book, the book was a thing that I always wanted, but never thought I could have. And now it's coming. And I just, I, I mean, words, I don't have them. Um, and then what else was really big this year? I guess the thing that was, the other thing that was big, I can't even tell you about yet because it won't come out until the new year. Oh, um, all right. We're going to have to circle back then. <laughs> yes. But also the Tommy Hilfiger thing. I thought that was a, I thought that was like a spam email until I saw my name. I was like, 
is this real? And so it took me like a couple hours to click on it because I was like, I feel like this is spam, but I'm going to look anyway. And it was like, hi, Kia. You know, we're interested in a partnership with you. And I was like, oh, my God. So, yeah, those were the those were the big things um, this year that I just never thought were possible, but ended up being. What's something that you plan to do less of in 2018? Um, I definitely plan to do less procrastinating, like to, to procrastinate less. Is it going to work out? Absolutely not. But I'm but I plan to do it. You have and good so intentions. Yes. Yeah. I have good intentions. I mean, it's not going to it's not going to work out. But, you know, we're going <laughs> to. We're going to go in knowing that this isn't going to work, but we're going to try. Right. Going to try to try to refresh Twitter like one less time a day. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, I'll take it from 100 to 99. Yeah. So that's Pro- something. Progress it, is progress. Yeah, um, it counts. The next question is about books. Which two to three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have had the biggest impact on you or that you recommend or reread most often? Okay. So Hunger by Roxane Gay. Oh, so good. Bad Feminist by Roxane Gay. Difficult Women by Roxane Gay. Um, the Border of Paradise by Esme Weijung Wang. Oh, she's been a guest on the show. She's brilliant. And yeah. that book is amazing. Yeah, I'm obsessed such with her. A, such a good debut. Um, anything by Jodi Pakal. And I'm not saying that because we're friends, but because she's just amazing. And then um, Beverly Clearly, Beverly Clearly, Beverly Cleary's <clears throat> Dear Mr. Henshaw. I reread often. At least once a year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. Um, last question. If you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take, what would it be? Um, I guess it would be to give a fuck about people who don't look like you and people who aren't in your shared experiences. I think expand your worldview would be my um, my call to action. I mean, mic drop on that. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> uh, what's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new people? Yes, Twitter. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Kia, K-E-A-H underscore Maria, M-A-R-I-A. You can check out my work at Kia Brown, K-E-A-H-B-R-O-W-N dot Weebly dot com. Um, and then I guess... Just, yeah, Twitter is the best way to keep updated with me. Um, I don't have a Facebook page yet. I guess I should make one, um, <laughs> like a professional one anyway. But, yeah, those are the two places that you can reach me and, and hear about my work and um, maybe enjoy some tweets about cheesecake and hot guys who are shirtless. Oh, my so. God. It sounds like the best Twitter stream ever. Um, I will put links yeah. to all of that in the show notes. Kia, thank you so much. Thank you. This was wonderful. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. I definitely couldn't do this without you. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is now a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Sarah. Hi, Sarah. Hi. We're going to do some fun rapid-fire questions. Are you ready? All right, let's do it. All right, let's do it. My favorite question, what are you totally obsessed with right now? I... Um, have started wearing compression socks. <laughs> I got, so long story short, I've had this varicose vein issue and um, decided to start wearing compression socks more often. And Wazelle made the ones with the birds. And I get compliments on them wherever I go. They make me feel, um, 
not like I'm an old lady wearing compression stockings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I so saw I'm those looking at all the different out. colors and styles. Yep. Uh, I I like I don't wear compression socks because I wear toe socks for the most part. Like mostly I use compression stuff with uh, running, but I wear the compression just like the sleeves, you know, that's just like your yes. calf. Um, but yeah, yeah, I saw when Wazelle came out with their socks. I'm like, oh, do I need those? Probably I need yep. those. <laughs> that's what made me finally do it. I was like, okay, they can't be that bad. <laughs> that's awesome. Um, what's one place in the town where you live that you'd really recommend people check out if they ever travel there? Hmm. Well, I live in Santa Cruz. So the first thing I want to say is the ocean which is not very specific. Um, but yeah, West Cliff Drive is um, a beautiful path along the ocean and then heads out into Wilder Ranch State Park, which is just trails, trails, trails all along the coast. And it's amazing. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> What's one thing that you've had to let go of or stop doing this year in order to move forward? Being afraid. Um yeah, I've had some health issues over the last few years that had turned into kind of a PTSD fear situation that I just could no longer live with if I was going to move forward in my life. And so I literally took Liz Gilbert's tagline of onward and made that my new mantra and did kind of a deep dive study into the difference between my fear and intuition and how to recognize which was which and figuring out when my body was okay and when it wasn't okay. And now when I recognize that fear-based thought loop, um, I just pull out that word onward. I, I, I have to. Mm, that's fascinating that what you said about the difference between intuition and fear. Is there anything that you've learned? I mean, obviously, I'm sure you've learned a lot about that, that like that you want to share that's been helpful for telling the difference between those two? Because I, I definitely struggle with that. And I'm sure most people yeah. do. Yeah, well, um, I wrote a, a blog piece on it, I'll send it to you. But in essence, fear is um, a small, tiny, scared voice, it can sound big. The energy of intuition is very empowered and very tall and standing charge. And I feel like fear holds my breath and intuition gives me breath. So when I'm like not breathing and looking around for what could possibly be wrong, I know that's fear. Whereas intuition, I'm standing tall and I'm feeling strong. And I might have more of a curious um, peek into sensations, but not that tiny hopping around, oh my God, what could that be sort of sensation. Mm, interesting. And you mentioned your blog. Will you share what your blog URL is? It is sherunswild.com. Okay, awesome. Um, yeah, this is super interesting. Now I want to have like a whole conversation about this, but I will rein it in. Yes. Um, yes. What's one decision in your past that had you chosen differently, you feel like would have led you down an entirely different path in life? Hmm. The easiest one for me to just say off the bat is had I not decided to end my marriage of 10 years. I was mm. married from age 20 to age 30 and 30 turned into be a profound pivot in my life. I had a three-year-old at the time and my job was ending and I was beginning again in so many areas and I chose to leave a marriage which I could never regret because it gave me my son and yet I knew was complete at that time in my life. And so moved forward into new home, amazing new job that was my 
dream job, heart's desire, and I know had I stayed where I was, I would not have made those steps. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the last question, what's one thing that you've recently been wishing people were more open and honest about? I hear your guests often say money, and that's definitely a big one. Um, yeah, I'm just going to say money. Mm-hmm. What, in anything in particular in the uh, arena of money? How much debt we have, how much we spend, how much we have saved or not, how much we plan or don't, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Yeah. Because I find that um, people who – I work uh, with people who uh, are all across the spectrum of university-level employees, and I find zero connection between their annual income and their financial health. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it would be interesting to – to have more openness around our financial choices and how we end up where we end up. Yeah, I think so too. And yes, you're right. That does come up all the time. So clearly we're Mm -hmm. not alone. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yep. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you've made a small and powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show each season for which I am very grateful. And I would love for you to share why you decided to support the show. This show speaks into my soul like nothing else I've ever heard. I mean, I've been a competitive runner for years and work in the field of health and wellness and coach people for a living. And when I listen to, um, when I listen to your conversations, regardless of what they are about and with whom this, I feel kind of like a soul sister connection in that so much of of the way you dialogue with people and the people you bring onto the podcast resonate, resonates deep in me and helps me find my own voice for the work I do. So I certainly have the, um, the topical resonance with different athletes you bring in and, and different writers and entrepreneurs and health and wellness people. But more than that, it's the sole resonance of, of what you're after and getting to the heart of things to make this world a better place. Um, I mentioned going through some health stuff and uh, I had a basically two months of in and out of the hospital stuff um, while you were on your hike. And the words that you put out every single day while you were on your hike were like my food of um, courage in the face of fear. And the one line that I heard and wrote down and keep coming back to was when you said, I'm just going to have to become someone who can do this because I can't do this. So I'm going to have to become that person who can. And that has been a mantra. Um, I recommend people in their work to people who I coach. Jazz yoga was a big one because I coach a lot of people who are looking for yoga that is actually restorative and fits into their life. And I could go on and on and on, but in so many different dimensions, this this is everything I believe in and I want to support it as much as I can. I feel like I'm going to cry. That's like the nicest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> thank you so much. Well, I could cry and I just want to thank you. I was going to write all that and then I was like, oh, I get to be on her podcast. So I'll just tell her that what you've done is, um, and the ripple effect is beyond what you could possibly know. We'll see. Now I can play this back when I'm feeling self-doubty. So it's yes. very good for me. Do that. Um, as, Do that. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want over 40 hours of bonus content, plus lots of other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight episode season. 
I honestly can't tell you how much your support means to me, and it's going to be so much fun to get to know you better after you've joined our community. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can, and no matter what, we're in this together.